podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Well, thank you, and looking forward to yet another midweek game. Yes, yet another midweek game. Jurgen Klopp said today in his press conference that since we played Arsenal last, which was in January, they've played six games and we've played 12. Fixture congestion is a bitch. Yeah, I think the uh, obvious answer there is that uh, we, the club Arsenal, need to try and become again because they're having a very nice little run and it's kind of the same as they did at this stage of the first half of the season. They got all the victories against all the fodder and that's perfectly fine and good. Now they have uh, obviously a bit of a tougher run coming up and not necessarily all of them too close together. I know they've got uh, us in midweek and obviously back at the week again but their run to the end of the season is not too terrible in terms of days between games but they do have to play obviously Liverpool Aston Villa who themselves have been informed Palace a difficult side uh, Man United to come as well and a few others so we'll see how they bear across that second run this season because last time out it wasn't the best Yeah it wasn't the best for them and they're yet to prove that they're capable of beating the top teams in the Premier League they have beaten up largely on the fodder they have had some Decent results. They did beat Wolves twice, and I would say those are the two best results they've had this season. Uh, they did beat West Ham at home, but the Hammers were without three of their starting back four. Uh, they've beaten Leicester twice, but Leicester aren't very good this year. And they did beat Tottenham, obviously, at home, but again, that was Tottenham in a bit of a tailspin. And Tottenham still could have gotten a draw in that game. <clears throat> Their back half of the season is the toughest of anybody competing for a finish in the top seven. They have, like you said, they've got us, they've got Spurs, they've got West Ham, they've got United, they've got Chelsea, they've got Villa, they've got Crystal Palace, they've got Brighton again. So it is going to be quite the test for them. They have been very, very fortunate this season. They've had minimal injuries. They've only had to play one game a week most weeks. And it has been very favourable to them. They have beaten up on the dross, and that's a good starting point for them. But we've been here before with Arsenal, where they look like they might be becoming something, and then they stop becoming that and become something else. So they're a team to be respected, but not necessarily feared ahead of this game. Um, I've We have two questions from Discord that I want to do before we get into the nuts and bolts of the Arsenal game. So we'll start with this one. This is from Shamik. Quick question. How much time are you and Dave going to spend analysing the current Chelsea situation? So we've obviously talked a little bit about it. 
In your spare time, are you dedicating any more time to following the story, you know, looking into potential buyers or anything like that, or are you just waiting to see how it plays out? Um, so to be perfectly honest, most of my working week is on this stuff. It's um, obviously the biggest story in football right now, which is perfectly fine to say. That's that's what it is. Chelsea is one of the biggest clubs in Europe in terms of the last decade or so. They are the reigning European and world champion, so it stands to reason that they're up for sale. Most of our resources go on following that story, really. Um, there's nothing really that I can add which isn't already out there, that's for sure. Um, we, we had... Yesterday was it, or the day before, about uh, Martin Broughton, former Liverpool chairman, being the latest one to say that he's you know potentially interested in all the rest of it. But it still seems that it'll be either the uh, American consortium or obviously we've now got another one from similar realms of uh, the world of Manchester City's owners, which are looking at a, a bid as well, or have already made a bid, suggestively. That would be the Saudi media group. Now, the thing is, that's the head of a consortium as well. And any time I hear consortium, I don't immediately think massive wealth. But this is a, a private entity, not one with massive cash reserves. This is one where the owner of said media group is having to go and find people to help him put this bid together. The same with the Americans. So, I mean, that's going to mean a very drastic change of pace for Chelsea having to become a properly run football club, not losing money year on year. This isn't the same as, you know, the Saudi PIF coming in or, or City's owners or Roman himself when he did appear. And for Chelsea fans getting very excited by the idea of these of this bid from the Saudi media group, I think it might be one where they need to temper expectations because they don't have that type of money backing them to come in and just randomly throw away a hundred million quid every single year. No, maybe not. And also obviously depending on who, who does get it in the end, they they can have very different outlooks. You know, one is a real finance business entity, the other one has a history of taking over sports uh teams and plowing relative money into them, uh, obviously depending on which sport we're talking about. But there's no there's no real way to say Nothing is going to happen the same as it has been before for Chelsea. I think that's fine. You know, it's going to be different. It's going to be different owners, so there's going to be a different path. But I don't think you can outright say it'll be much better, much worse, much more expensive, much more. You know, there will be changes. It, it is a different kind of uh, mentality and ownership group, depending on who wins it. Either one of them are still going to be different to Abramovich and his time. I mean, there's so much, obviously, that we don't know in terms of like are people like Marina Granoskoya going to stay? She's been one of their key players, really. Um, in, in helping build this this current side and the current off off pitch setup, but all to do with the football and stuff. Um, and Chelsea are levels ahead of quite a lot of teams in that regard. So is all of that going to mm. change as well? I mean, it could be a huge, huge change for them in terms of club culture and all of that. But you know, the the, the fans aren't going to change. The fans' expectations aren't going to change. The fans' sense of entitlement in a modern era isn't going to change because that's kind of across all clubs. Yeah, but maybe it's going to have to, because if it's Todd Bowley, the American, who comes in, he doesn't have anywhere close to the finances. He's a part owner of the Lakers and a part owner of the Dodgers. Um, he's invested in, I think, the Washington, no, some women's basketball team, um, but he's got a net worth that's not anywhere 
close to what Roman has, he's another one that's seeking outside investment. And when you get a lot of a lot of potential owners, so like in these groups, there might be three or four owners in each one. All of them is going to want their say, and we've seen in the past that consortiums can get quite messy. Martin Broughton's an interesting one that you mentioned. He is a Chelsea fan, lifelong, was the chairman of Liverpool for, a few, for I think, less than a year, was largely responsible for the sale of the club to FSG, and um, is, a, is a genuinely good man. But again, he would be heading up a consortium, and that's, you know, again, that's not likely to lead to mega spending. Uh, but Chelsea are in a fairly good situation where they have the best academy in Europe. They produce an incredible amount of players. And as long as they're willing to continue funding that at the same level, potentially that can be their source of players more so than the transfer market. And you can put together a very, very special team if you just look at Chelsea academy players age 27 and under who've, who are now playing in the Premier League or in Serie A. There's, there's a lot of very, very good players that have come through that academy. Uh, speaking of Syria, second question of the day from Sean Gadu. How has Lee, Lee Condrington managed to swindle himself a senior role at Atalanta? Uh, Lee Condrington is a very interesting fella. So he was chief scout at Chelsea for the reserves and the youth team under Frank Arneson. Then he became the sporting director of Hamburg, was a disaster there. Then he went to Sunderland was a disaster there. Then he went to Celtic as head of recruitment, was a disaster there. And for the last three years or so, he has been the head of senior recruitment at Leicester, but not a decision maker. Um, This guy is not very good at what he does. I'm really not sure how he's gotten a job with Atalanta, who are notoriously good in the transfer market. Yeah, I'll be honest, until he went to Leicester, he wasn't someone that I'd even come across. He wasn't even on my radar, to be perfectly honest. Only when he went to Leicester, then I sort of had to look in to see who on earth is this guy. And obviously he's had really good appointments. Like the the, the places he's worked in terms of what they've been trying to do and the role that he's had and all that, really, really good CV. Actual output and results and how he's left those clubs, not so much. No, no, not so much at all. Um, he is close with Rogers, and his departure might indicate that Brendan is planning an escape this summer because they have been very, very closely linked. He was sacked by Sunderland after 18 months, uh, was out of football for the better part of two years. Rogers brought him to Celtic. His recruitment at Celtic was absolutely appalling. And then Rogers brought him to Leicester when he went there. So, yeah, he he's gotten jobs more on his relationship with Brendan than anything else for the last five years. The time at Sunderland was a disaster. He was not good at Hamburg at all. Uh, so you do wonder how it is that he continues to get decent jobs. Um, but look, fair play to him if he's able to walk into the room and and swindle these things. He's obviously been listening to Brendan speak because, you know, Brendan could convince you that the sky was green if you let him. Um, 
So fair play, fair play. <laughs> Poor old Atalanta, though. Bad day to be one of your fans. Um, let's move on. Arsenal. We have played them three times this season already. We beat them 4-0 in the Premier League back in November. Mane, Jota, Salah and Taki. Then they beat us 0-0 in the first leg of the EFL Cup when they played with 10 men, parked the bus and basically just kicked our players endlessly from when Xhaka was sent off. Uh, We then beat them 2-0 in the EFL Cup second leg with two goals from Diogo Jota when we were sans the AFCON boys. Um, We've had a very good run against Arsenal for the last couple of years, Carl. But this this team of theirs does seem slightly better than even the team we played in January. Yeah, spoke about them at the time in January and said that they were definitely on the right path. They'd they'd found a system which finally balanced quite nicely in a few areas. But most important of all, from my perspective, is the fact that they were able to keep these partnerships in place. And that's, you know, when when you're putting a new team together, that's simply the most important thing to start doing. You need to rediscover uh, a new centre-back pairing, for example. They actually needed to rediscover an entire triangle because they added a goalkeeper as well. So the more games that they got together, obviously the little bit more cohesion there would be, better understanding between those players. They've managed to keep about the same, I'd say, 14, 15 players involved on a nearly every single week basis. Uh, they've had, obviously, a couple of injuries along the way, like Tommy Asu and then Shaka uh, with injury and 17 suspensions like usual, and then he's come back into the side, so there's been one or two changes in midfield. And there's basically any four from five for those uh, the three behind the one then. But mostly it's been a really, really tight-knit squad and I think that that's benefited them a lot. It's kept real consistency in the way that they play, in the areas of the pitch that the players cover. Yeah, and Obviously the build-up play gets a lot more familiarity about it when they've got those similar sorts of players. And they've definitely benefited as well from people like Martinelli really sparking this year. You know, He had a long, long period out injured. He had a couple of afterwards coming back and then a couple of niggles afterwards. So he finding form and really giving them that ability to stretch play in an attacking sense as well as having all that really good build-up through Odegaard and the rest of them is helped them enormously. Like And like I said before, they have been able to constantly, consistently beat all the crap in the league. You know, we, we know mm. from previous years, when you're trying to get back up there, it's not really just those four or five matches across the season against, you know, Chelsea and Man City and the rest of it that are going to make the difference of where you finish. It is the 25 games against... Palace against Burnley, against Norwich, against all those other ones, and they've managed to beat them pretty much constantly, to be honest. Like I said, they had a bad start to the season, and then after they went on a really good run, they had an obvious period which was coming up where they were going to face struggle, and they did. They struggled across two of those such runs. They went, I think it was five games without a win at one point, which is still showing you the, the hallmark of obstacles to overcome, but after they do get back to winning ways, it's again, it's what, is it five in a row that they've won now? So it it does show you that there's definite improvements. In terms of mentality, this is now a much upgraded team, I would say, compared to one year ago, uh, where you just they still looked like if you if you bullied them a little bit, if you frustrated them a little bit, and if you scored the first goal, you knew you'd score three, four, easily. It wasn't a problem at all. So they're a bit better than that now. There is a bit more resilience to them. But in terms of the, you know the top three, let's say, I, I still think there's a bit of a gap, even though if they were to win their games in hand, they'd actually only be two points off Chelsea. 
They would, but that is a Chelsea team that has underperformed this season um, rather than a Chelsea team that's playing at, at their highest level. They do have some really good players. Like I, I really like Tommy Asu. Now, thankfully, he's out for this game, which means Cedric plays. And there's a massive drop-off from Tommy Asu and what he is defensively to what Cedric is defensively. Uh, I do like Gabriel. I do really like Kieran Tierney. I can't get on board with Ben White or Benjamin White, as he enjoys being called. I just, there's something about him. There's something about his positioning, the decisions he makes. There's something with Ben White that I watch him and just think, you're going to make a mistake. And he's made a lot of mistakes this year. He's gotten away with the vast majority of them. But, there's just something there that I can't get on board with. Now, the plus for them is they do still own William Saliba, who's arguably been the best defender in French League this year, and they could bring him back and slot him in, and that would represent an upgrade at that position. But what have you made of Ben White this season? I mean, he's obviously very good on the ball, but as a defender, is he someone you'd be staking your life on? <laughs> there are no Arsenal players I would stake my life on. There's still Arsenal players. Um, that's fair. That's very fair. Yeah. Now, look, White obviously has the certain parts of his game where he is very, very good. I, there's no denying that. I don't think that he, as an individual defender, is necessarily tremendous, but he works really, really well with Gabriel, and I think that that is worth a lot more than having two individually good defenders. If you have two players who know when to cover for each other, who uh, position themselves well with the right spaces between them, who can direct other people at set pieces, all that kind of defensive stuff which relies on organisation, which relies on you getting it right 90% of the time. I, I value that more than having two individually strong um, centre-backs. And I would even include a goalkeeper in that. I think the longer that, let's say, Ramsdale plays behind the two of them, the less likely it is that you're going to need Ramsdale's goalkeeping ability to actually be called into to, into question or to be need to come to the fore to save the day with his positional work and all the rest of it because as a three as a unit they will more instinctively be able to defend those spaces better they will know where they need to be against counterattacks or against set pieces or if they need to play out of defense or all that kind of stuff that familiarity is a really really important thing between that triangle in particular so while i would not in any way shape or form rank them really really highly among the league's best center backs or goalkeeper as a unit, they're better than a lot of the other ones. I mean, I think that this mm. Arsenal three are better than Man United's by a considerable distance because Man United's have no cohesion. They have yeah, they very, very little familiarity. They don't play together regularly. They rotate the centre-backs. This doesn't work over the long haul, across a long season long. You don't want to do that with such regularity. I mean, especially when they're not that good individually. That's That's the other thing, you know. Can you win the league with Aaron Ramsdale and Ben White as two-thirds of your defensive triangle? Because that has to be the aim for them. This is not like, say, Palace, watching Palace last night and you're watching, you know, Anderson and Gwehi with uh, Gaeta behind and you're thinking, like, Anderson and Gwehi work really well together. You'd like to see them upgrade the goalkeeper, but <clears throat> they've done really well this season. But really well for them is finishing in the top half like that's that's the ambition and the aim for crystal palace is if we could get to finish in the top half we're absolutely delighted with that that's the ultimate goal for us maybe even we could challenge for the europa conference league some year 
if we continue to build this for a couple of years. But for Arsenal, it has to be about winning the title. It has to be. That's who they are as a football club. They're one of the three or four biggest clubs in England. They're one of the ten biggest clubs in Europe, in my view. And and, and Ramsdale might help you get top four. But at some point, you're going to have to look at what bridges the gap from fourth to first. And I think yeah. those are the two positions that would, would have to be updated or upgraded. Or they're two of the positions that would have to be upgraded. We'll get on to the others. Like, I think you can win the league with Tommy Asu, who reminds me of Branislav Ivanovic, and Kieran Tierney, who I think is one of the three or four best left backs in the league. I think Gabriel is good enough to win the league. Those are the two, though, I, I just... I don't think they are. Um, I, I think that that's perfectly fine. I do think that Arsenal are making a long-term bet on Ramsdale being that good, to be honest. We'll see, obviously, if that works out or not. I don't think it will, but they're making that bet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they upgraded one of the centre-backs, though. I mean, it's absolutely the case that if you want to win the league, if that's your ultimate aim and you think that that's going to happen, let's say, in I don't know, six years or something like that under Arteta, well, year one and two is just deciding who he wants to be there and who he thinks is good enough, really. And this year, they've obviously made a big bet on Ben White to try and get them into the mix, not to get to the title, to get them up into the top four. And I think that it's pretty normal that you would have to have like two reconstructions to get there. I mean, even Liverpool, we, we settled on Van Dijk, but that was several years into the into the renewal of the team. Our first ones were Matip and Clavan. So not the same scale of outlay that they've made on Ben White, obviously, but they're coming from a lot further down. They're coming from a, a history of having wasted tens and tens of millions on defenders, especially. And they needed to really settle on someone and say, right, no matter what happens, you're going to be in the team. You're going to be part of our uh, foundations. And if it so happens that they upgrade and they're moving forward into midfield, then that has paid off even more. Because you know we've spoken about it before, as a, as a holder midfielder, maybe Ben White offers more long-term to them mm. than he does as a centre-back. But for now... He's better than what they had before. He's a lot more consistent than, let's say, uh, Holding, for example, who I thought played really well for Arsenal at times, but he's quite limited. And maybe White, along with Gabriel, gives them more uh, to the team overall. Um, the other thing I would say is, although obviously Ben White has certain things that he's really, really good at, Benjamin White, sorry, I keep forgetting, um, Gabriel is probably as good or better at all of those things than he is as well, including yeah. short-range passing, switches of play, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. And I think he's a substantially better defender. Uh, I, I think Ben White is a midfielder. I genuinely do. I think he's a holding midfielder. I don't think he's a centre-back. And I think when you spend £50 million on someone, it's going to be very hard to then go to your owners and say, right, we need to upgrade on him now. He, he was the bridging player. Like I, I don't agree with you when you say they've come from further back than we came from. I think the, the squad Klopp took over was worse than the squad Arteta took over. Like, Arteta walked in and inherited Gabriel... No, not Gabriel. Tierney, Mart- Martinelli, Saka, and Smith-Rowe. Like, that's that for me is four parts of a, of a title-winning team. He walked in and inherited those. So, I, I'm not sure I, I'd agree that they were further away. I think they've also got a better academy than we had when Klopp took over. 
substantially better. I think their academy, if it wasn't for Chelsea, would be seen as the best in the league. Um, and they've spent a shitload of money to get where they are now. I, I do think Ben White, long term, the best role for him could well be uh, sat in front of that defence. And that that would be very, very good if they, if they can work that out. If Saliba can come back and him and Gabriel can establish a partnership and Ben White can sit into midfield, then you unleash Thomas Partey as that box-to-box midfielder. I think you get even more out of him than you are sitting him next to Granit Xhaka. Um, the midfield then is the next area to look at. So Thomas Partey, we've both admired for years when he was at Atletico Madrid. Granit Xhaka, I'm not sure there's a player in the Premier League that we have laughed at more than Granit Xhaka. If there is, it's a very short list. It's it's quite a, a strange midfield pairing in that one of them is really good, one of them is dog shit, but they do actually work fairly well together. Yeah, there's a lot of industry and there's a lot of, um, without being defensive midfielders as such, uh, willingness to sit in and sit behind play. I think that's the important thing. I mean, of the last few games, it's been Tomas breaking into the box an awful lot more, getting mm. a little bit more back to that Roman midfield that we used to see him, especially Atletico. But I I will never get on board with Granit Xhaka. He's just stupid. No. He's a ridiculous player. And I don't care if he has seven good games in a row. He's still that player. And, you know, he'll still revert to being that player. Now, there's still talk that they'll sell him to Roma in the summer. Jose Mourinho, for some reason, seems absolutely desperate to add him to the squad, to the team. More more power to him if if all this years and all the success that Jose Mourinho has had in football, and what he ends up with is thinking that Granite Shack is the perfect piece. It just shows you how much football moves on across a period of ten fifteen years. It is funny to me though that like Xhaka has played two hundred and thirty eight games for Arsenal, so it's not like it's a small sample size. He's twenty nine. He turns thirty in September. It's not like he's a young player who's learning the ropes. He wasn't a particularly young player when they bought him. He was 23 turning 24. So he was heading in towards his prime years when they bought him. And yet there are still Arsenal fans desperately trying to believe that when he does string two or three good performances together, that Xhaka has proven people wrong. Like, the evidence is there before you. You've seen him now for six years And yes, he pops up every now and then with a handful of good performances. But then he gets himself sent off or he'll get injured and be out for a while or he'll just have, you know, a litany of errors in a game and cost you the game. And This is Granit Xhaka. He is, in some ways, the Dejan Lovren of central midfielders. Um, He's a very strange player. But that's obviously an area for them to look to, to upgrade and like I say, I do think Ben White stepping into that role could fix that problem for them. The area that they're really exciting in is the three behind the one. So they've got four outstanding options. And then they've got a couple of other decent options for these roles. So recently the starters have been Saka off the right, who is just an absolute joy to watch, a sensational footballer. Martinelli off the left. And I, I genuinely think if you were to ask Klopp in a moment of just pure honesty, which two wide players in the league would you most like? I think he would name those two before anybody else. And then Martin Odegaard as the 10. And Odegaard in recent weeks has been 
absolutely sensational to watch. And I think he's starting to show similarities, not necessarily that he'll become as good a player, but in how he plays and what he offers to the team. He's really starting to remind me of David Silva. Just that intelligence, that movement, linking the play, popping up, popping the ball off, never taking too much out of the ball, picking the right pass, timing the pass correctly. Martin Odegaard has been really, really good, especially over this recent run of games. What do you make? And then obviously Smith Rowe is the other one. What do you make of these as a group? I was so worried there that you were going to finish that sentence about Odegaard saying he's getting close to being like Mesut Ozil. Oh, I was going to explode. Um, no, but I've seen I, Arsenal fans, and I just don't, I don't see, I, I don't think he's that. He's not, I think he's because he's, he's, he's Arsenal. He's, that's all. That's literally. yeah. That's he's a left-footed number left. ten for Arsenal, and that's the only connection to Ozil. But and stylistically watching him, I do think he's a lot more David Silva-esque. Not as good, but, you know, the, the style. No, look, he's someone who is, he's not just a playmaker, he's a, much more of a ball carrier, I think. He's, he's quite an underrated part of his game, to be fair. Obviously, he has this really good ability to play the through balls and very, very good vision, and the weight of his pass is really good. But that the thing that he does really well for me is taking the ball on the turn and moving into space. He's not really, really quick, but he can attack space very, very well over the first two, three yards. That gets him the time. That that little bit of ball carrying, that can often make the difference when, you know, defences are quite packed, quite deep against you, really compact and difficult to break through. That ability to just make a tiny bit of space. They've got, I think, I would say four, five players who can do that in different ways. Thomas Partey is obviously one who's just like a wrecking ball when he gets going. And then someone like Saka is just a lot more about ball manipulation and just really good acceleration to get past people in in tight spaces. But Odegaard is the one who can just take the ball on the turn and suddenly be two yards away from whoever was tracking him. And somebody else has to then step out, which leaves a gap for somebody else to run into, which he's good enough to find the pass to. It's it's a very, very unique sort of skill set to have all of that in, in one player, I think. But it does need him to operate centrally to make the most out of it. Because when you when you've put him out wide when he's in from the right-hand side, for example. He doesn't really have, I don't think, the, the dynamic aspect to his play like Saka does to really join up into the attack where he has to a lot more in that role. And if you can nullify Odegaard as a, a recipient of the ball with your positional work with with a Fabinho, for example, I do think that you take quite a lot away from Arsenal's build-up play, even if he's not the best one, because I think that's Saka by some distance, to be perfectly honest. But if you can take away that 10 zone as a as a as a means of Arsenal's build up players their conduit basically between midfield and attack i think you remove quite a considerable uh, amount of their threat and an amount of their likelihood of getting extra players into the box because when it's Odegaard on the ball that's when you get the in from out runs from Martinelli from um even from Tierney on the overlap then it's it's a much much reduced threat from them when you completely wipe out that space, which is not just Odegaard, but it's also Lacazette, who's really, really good at dropping into that zone. Um, like I said, I think Saka is the best by an absolute mile. I would have him in a heartbeat, and I would pay whatever it took to get him at Liverpool. But I do also like Martinelli very, very much. And like I said, he has really now rediscovering not just form, but also fitness. I think that's been a, mm. a very important thing for him, because it was only, I think only two months ago, he finally made his... Uh, fourth consecutive league start for Arsenal. He hadn't done it since he joined. 
Yeah, he had some really bad luck with injury, and he is just, he's a really special player, uh, Martinelli. He's not got the technical level of Saka, but he there's something really special about him. I, I think <clears throat> any combination of Saka, Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, Martinelli, whatever way you want to put them on the field, and I think if Arteta was a little bit braver, when they played the dross, he'd try and get all four of them on the pitch. He's he's done it once, but he set them up in the wrong sort of configuration. But in a 4-3-3 with Smith-Rowe and, and Odegaard as your eights and Saka Martinelli either side of your nine, they could be devastating against the dross. Obviously, you're not going to do it against the top the top teams, but um, it, it is... It, it's a very good situation for Arsenal to be in, to have this group of young players. Odegaard, at what, what is he, 23, is the eldest of them. You've got Martinelli is 20, uh, Saka is 20, and Smith-Rowe is 21. Like That's a really, really promising core to be building with. They've also got a cavalcade of youngsters coming from that academy who will land in the next couple of years and really add to this as well and, and give them a boost. Young Charlie Patino looks a very special player just as the next one through. Um, up front is where they've had some issues. Lacazette is playing very, very well. There's absolutely no question about that. And he is very important to how they play with his ability to drop off link play. Doing a decent enough impression of Bobby Firmino at times the issue is Lacazette only has four goals in the league. They're not getting enough goals from that centre forward spot. And the only other forward they have at the club right now is Eddie Nketiah, who's yet to start in the league, has zero goals in the league, five in all competitions to his credit. But between him and Lacazette, they've only scored 11 goals. Uh, I think off the top of my head, we have three players who've scored more than that this season. So, um You'd imagine that will be a priority one for the summer, going and finding a reliable goal scorer who can also give them elements of what Lacazette gives them in that ability to drop into midfield, to link play, to be a conduit for the team to play through. It's hard to find that player. I don't know who it would be off the top of my head. The names that have been linked, I think Jonathan David maybe could become that player, but you're projecting out two, three years down the line. Calvert-Lewin, they've been linked with. He's a decent hold-up player, but he's not one that drops into midfield. He's not a particularly good passer. Alexander Isak has been mentioned. Again, he doesn't offer that same kind of playmaking ability. They were linked, obviously, with Vlahovic. They spent a long time, wasted, I should say, a long time on Vlahovic. Again, he's not that type of player, but he is that frontline number nine that gets a ton of goals and maybe that's where they go next. Maybe they don't go for someone who can offer that Lacazette movement and, and link-up ability. Maybe they just want someone that's going to power through and, and get them 20 goals a season. Yeah, I mean, I spoke about this last time we discussed Arsenal, to be honest. They're, they're number nine and I think they need to buy two. That is the single most important thing that they need for next season. Let's assume that they get into the top four, to be honest. Even if they don't get into the top four, their their ambition for next year is still going to be finish in the Champions League spots and it's just going to be a difference of you know maybe who they can attract this first year and uh, whether they do it or not this year so 
they could go either way, you know. They could try and just go all out for a goal scorer, the best one that they can find. They can look for someone who does the dropping in. But also, as I've said before, it depends how they want to use Martinelli in the future. If Do they want him to become a nine? Do they want him to become basically the goal scorer of the team, but who still plays from the left, like Aubameyang when he first joined? And if so, they, mm. they need someone who is really, really good at roving the channels. They need someone who's happy to filter wide to the left. They need someone who's going to be able to uh, play the combination passes but leave that space in behind so it's a real not just a difficult profile of forwards to find but also to to have that idea of what you want to do with the rest of those players around him in the future I mean look we don't know Bakayo Saka's obviously got a contract situation coming up maybe not this summer but within the next 12 months and ideally mm. you want to get it done this summer because if it starts going into the last 12 months that's you know that's not going to be ideal for Arsenal because I I think there would be dozens of sharks circling that particular boat. And again, how you want to use him going forward, how he wants to be playing going forward. Does he want to be on the right-hand side all the time? Does he see himself more in midfield? Because he played there for quite a while for them, and he was absolutely excellent. So mm. loads and loads of things which are not necessarily about the number nine itself, but all about the makeup of the team over the coming years will go into form and who that number nine has to be. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think it would be a waste of Martinelli to play him through the middle. I think he is better being used as a wide forward. I, I wonder, like I say, if they were to play a 4-3-3 long term, could you use him in the same way Pep used Sterling alongside a, a, an Aguero where out of possession you're a 4-3-3, 4-5-1 type of situation in possession, that 4-3-3 can flex into a 4-4-2. And Martinelli can play that sterling role of becoming, from the wide forward, becoming like a second center forward off a striker. Uh, he has the pace, he has the movement, he has the instincts to do it. He's got more power than, than Sterling does in that kind of area. He's a more natural finisher than Sterling is in those kind of areas. Maybe it's something to look at. And then obviously, Smith Rowan and Saka... Uh, you know, in in wide areas could be really special, uh, especially given the the movement of flexibility they they'd have. But it is it, it, that is one of the questions they'll have to answer is is what do they want Martinelli to be over the next five six years? Now, one name I've heard linked to them, and a couple of Watford fans told me they've heard this as well is João Pedro. Now he wouldn't come in, I don't think, as a starter, but as a long-term number nine, he could be someone that would be ideal to get that best out of Martinelli. You know, he can lead the line, but he is almost as much of a playmaker as he is a a, a, a striker. Um, he doesn't have the goal return yet, but when you watch him play, he does offer an awful lot in that role. Um, so if they got him and somebody else, that might be an ideal situation They've talked up the possibility of a new deal for Lacazette. I think you have to be really careful with this, though. Like He's out of contract at the end of this season. He's 31 in May. This is probably his last big contract. So he's going to want a big contract. And he's probably going to want three to four years. Will they have learned the lessons from Aubameyang, Ozil, Willian and not risk giving him out this contract. Because the cynical side of me would look at it and say, 
well, he's playing really well in a contract year. Lacazette has moped and dragged his heels through his first few years at Arsenal. All of a sudden, he's in a contract year and he's performing really well. Are you going to get the same level of performance out of him next season? I can't say for certain that you would. I can't say for certain that you wouldn't, but it would give me pause for thought at 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 the age of 31. I think the two things to say on that is that one, those first few years where he definitely did coast and maybe didn't show anywhere near what he was capable of, certainly not when he joined them, um, is that that Arsenal team, like I said, the mentality, the culture around the team, it was completely different to what you'll see now. And maybe that extra sort of um, professionalism, I think, is one thing to say about it, a bit more resilience about them as well. Uh, the you know the new group of players like Martinelli and Tierney who are like, quite demanding compared to what came before. Maybe all of that has had an impact as well as obviously Lacazette himself is older and more mature now. Maybe all of that has just come together at a really good time for him. I would definitely not be looking at a three to four year contract. And if that's what he wants, then obviously fine, fair enough. But you let him go at that point. I think it has to be either a one or a a two year deal tops. And even if, if you could do it, um, one plus one if he makes enough appearances, for example, something like that. Mm. He's willing to do even, that. Even a two plus one, even mm-hmm. a two plus one where the club controls that third year option could be worth doing. Like, you, you can probably get a little bit creative on it as well, what the salary would be, but, you know, make it heavily incentivized. So he has to be A, starting and B, you know, scoring or assisting, give him something similar to what, you know, the Firmino type of contract where the more he does, the more it re- rewards him. Um, yeah, if, if they're looking for someone to play that similar role that he has been this season, like the drop in and all the rest of it, I, I would love to see the person they think can play better than he has over the last six months. Yeah, because I don't see the player out there. Not one and that's going to spent... be joining them. No, no, that's exactly it. Not one that they could A, afford, and B, attract. Um, Because I've spent an unusual amount of time going through different options from all around Europe of players that could fit in and immediately take them to a new level. And the list is really short, and none of the players on the list would have, I don't think, the interest in joining Arsenal Football Club at this point in time, maybe a couple of years down the line, but by then they're not the players you're going to be looking at. Um, the other issue I have with this Arsenal team, well, I, I think there's a little bit of a lack of leadership in this team. And I think there's times in certain games where the standard slips, even when they're playing well, they can't sustain that level of intensity. They can't sustain the level of control, of professionalism, of of concentration. And I don't see anybody really grabbing hold of the scruff of a game. Like, even especially in games where things aren't going really well for them. Like Burnley a couple of weeks ago uh, was a prime example. That game was crying out for one Arsenal player just to calm everybody down, get everybody together and start getting some good points across. And instead it became quite frenzied, very loose, everybody trying to win it by themselves. 
and all of the good work that they'd been doing just sort of disappeared. You look at the players currently listed as the captains in this Arsenal squad. You've got Lacazette, who, like I said, contract year, is he fully committed long-term? Who knows? Uh, their vice-captain is Kieran Tierney, who is a very good player, but I don't think he's ready to be the captain of a top club just yet. Granit Xhaka, the fact that he's in your leadership group would be a massive red flag for me, considering what we've seen from him. Like, the guy was club captain and had the captaincy stripped of him because of his behaviour. And then, like, Rob Holding, who should only ever really go on the pitch to see a game out or in, like, the early rounds of a domestic cup, he's a good fifth option. If he's your fifth centre-back, I think you're happy enough. If he's your Nat Phillips, I think you're happy enough. But if he's your third centre-back, which he currently is, I think you've got problems. And he's not really someone that you want on the pitch in a big moment. Uh, Look, I mean, if it's a team coming under pressure and all that kind of stuff later on in the game and you're trying to hold on for the result, I don't think there's anything wrong with bringing on a Phillips, a holding, a whoever. That's what I mean, yeah. Like, if you you need to see something out. Yeah, exactly that. I think that their their style, they're all about the clearances and the last line and bodies on the line, all that kind of crap. So it's fine to have that. I think, in fact, not just fine... I think you need to have that in the squad for some games, for some situations. You need that. And again, I would probably look back at what I said about White before. Maybe this isn't, it can't be, in fact, the long term plan because they have to do it in stages. You know, this year for Arsenal, they did spend a bit in the summer. Yeah, fine. But most of it since then has been about trimming what is a horrendously bloated squad. You know, all the January deals that they did to get out all those players on loan and get all those matches called off because they apparently didn't have any players because they just loaned out like 25 that's been getting rid of the the trimming the fat of the squad really that he doesn't want that he doesn't see that they're going to offer enough to Arsenal over the next two years if they're in European football again all the rest of it and to keep holding around I think suggests that one he probably is a really good uh trainer and all that kind of stuff you know he sets a good example and all that kind of nonsense so that's fine and you need to have him in the squad and that's fine and if they bring back Saliba, he's automatically the fourth choice, and that's fine. So I I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with having him particularly. Leadership-wise, I completely agree with you. The fact that they still rely on a few of these names who have been there and done so much wrong, I think getting rid of Aubameyang was a must. Uh, not yes. nothing to do with nothing to do with like oh, bad, bad egg, bad personality, all the rest of it. Just the fact that he's been disciplined multiple times by the club. If that happens, you can't be captain. He was no. captain six weeks before he was allowed to leave on a free transfer. You can't have that kind of person as a squad leader, as a real senior authority in the squad. Otherwise, you're going to get Arsenal of two years ago and three years ago and six years ago. That's what you're going to get on repeat. And until they completely rid themselves of all of those players, which I still include Shaka in that, and probably a few of them who are out on loan as well, it's not going to change entirely. But it is something which can probably change with just the addition of maybe two players you know if they do opt for an experienced forward let's say to come into the second one they sign someone really good and then I don't know, a, a more experienced older player like no, i'm not even going to give names someone who's been there and won things and now they're dropping down a level or so and they're going to be the backup for arsenal and the midfielder that they need to sign mm. maybe that makes a real real big difference 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing that's that's notable about their squad is they've got a lot of 24 and under players. They've got a few kind of 30 and older players. They don't have a lot of players in that sort of 25 to 29 range. You've got Thomas Partey, who's very, very good. El Nani, who's, you know, a squad depth player. Xhaka, who you wouldn't want in your team in a fit. And that's it. That's what they've got in that. And do you remember, if you look back at Liverpool, maybe four, five, six years ago, we used to talk about this, how we had this good group of young players, this, you know, core of older players, and nobody in that sort of, in their prime right now kind of group. And they're sort of in that, yeah, and they're sort of in that mix as well, where other than Partey, you wouldn't, I mean, no one wants Granit Xhaka in their team. No, Nobody does. I don't even think Arteta does. I just think he sees him as the best of a bad bunch. Because for whatever reason, he didn't get on with Lucas Torreira. Uh, Guendouzi is a noted pain in the arse. And he decided that it was better for the cohesion of the group to send him out away as far away from the club as he could. Um, regardless of the fact that Guendouzi is actually kind of what they need in this team. But, you know, he, he binned him off and he keeps Xhaka because he, maybe he likes... I, I actually don't know why he's kept Xhaka. I, I don't know where I was going with that. But my point is only Thomas Partey of that 25 to 29, 29 we can win now, we're top class player sort of bracket is at the club. And and that's a bit of a strange thing that I think they're going to have to address in the summer. I think they're going to have to get, not necessarily starters, but a couple more, a couple more grown-ups in the room. Now, obviously, you know, Ben White, Gabriel, Kieran Tierney, they're all 24. So they're getting ready to move into that sort of age bracket later this season, but they're still going to be at the, the, the young end of it rather than that more experienced end of it. And I mean, Ben White has, very little senior football at a high level under his belt. One season before this, Gabriel had the one season at Lille and one season at Arsenal before this one. So he's not exactly massively experienced at the highest level either. Tierney was at was at Celtic for years. So while he was playing in a lot of Champions League games at, at, a, at a league level, he wasn't getting that kind of hard yards every single week is a big chore type of thing. So... They don't have guys that have been through real wars, real trenches, the way you'd look at some of our players and say, that's a guy you can rely on. That's a guy who's been through the worst you can been through and come out of it. They don't really have that. And I I do think that feeds into the leadership thing as well, where I feel like Arsenal are a little bit soft. I feel like if you punch Arsenal in the face, they curl up and retreat. And that's not going to get the job done if the aim is to win the Premier League. I think it's notable that even in this you know, pretty good run that they've had, the only game that they've come from behind to take anything in is the Wolves one. And that came right near the end, obviously. They were 1-0 down until the 82nd minute, I think it was. Uh, Equaliser then and own goal in injury time to win it. Most of the rest of their games, they lead. And obviously on a technical level, they're very, very good. Organization is decent, and when you haven't got to go chasing a game, all of that plays into your hands. So, I suppose you can say the first goal is important, but it always is. So that's just stupid. But more so than usual, I think with this Arsenal team, that they've not had too many 
what I would say are tests and what you would say are in the face uh, mm. over the last run of matches. You know, it's it's still something that they haven't been tested on. And last time they were, they went on a five game run without a single victory. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the thing. And you know, you look back through their their wins as well. I mean, the, the win away to Wolves was impressive. Um, but they beat Brentford when Brentford looked absolutely hopeless. They did get that come-from-behind win over Wolves, which, again, they fought back really well. But that was mostly on Wolves. Wolves just tried to see that game out and got very, very complacent. They beat Watford. Everybody beats Watford except Man United. Watford are crap. Um, And they beat Leicester. And Leicester aren't very good this season. You know, they're... They're beating up on teams that aren't very good. When we see them against better teams, you do really wonder if the fight is there, if if the the know-how is there. When they go behind, is there enough about that team? And again, this is what I come back to with the leadership. Is there someone in that group that when they go, say, 2-0 down after 35 minutes, is there someone in that group that can get the players together the way we can we can rely on the likes of Henderson and Virgil and Thiago and Salah and Mane and these guys that have been through absolutely everything to just take a moment and realise, hang on a sec, there's still 55 minutes on the clock here. So let's get a goal before half time. And if we go in 2-1 down, then we're only 1-0 down. We'll come out in the second half and we'll beat them 2-0. I, I don't know that they have that mindset and I don't know they have anybody in that squad who's really capable of bringing that mindset. Even someone like Thomas Partey, who's been at the highest level, he played for Atletico Madrid. He was winning 1-0 every week. They never went behind. So he doesn't know what it's about either. Uh, the, the Arsenal players that have experienced going behind have largely done it at Arsenal where they've gone on to lose those games. Yeah, look, I think this is right. This is completely right. And I think it will still be right until it's not. And by that, I mean until we see actual evidence of it on the pitch where that has changed. And not just once, but, you know, two, three times. But that's okay, because that's where they are at the minute in the rebuild. So from an Arsenal perspective, I wouldn't expect that to be anymore. You can't, you know, unless you're just one of the supporters who just thinks your team should win every week, because I should team then you cannot expect that they just go from being a, a side who basically curled up any time that they got tackled and lost the game and were in mm. the bottom half or mid table to suddenly beaten everybody it just doesn't happen it's a building a team building process which goes on over many many months and even a couple of seasons you think back to when Klopp joined us even and we had just come off this oh my god it's dreadful to think about it but that run under Brendan Rodgers on the last what eight months of his tenure something like that Every time yeah. we came up against a challenge, we were abysmal. We were dreadful. We had no response. We had no tactical fallback. We had no consistency in our build-up play. We didn't have any patterns of attack. We didn't have anything at all, let alone well, mentality no to overcome it. Yeah. So when Klopp came in, he made this really, really big thing. The first couple of times that we bounced back and even just got a draw or anything like that to say that this is a big thing. He made a thing yeah. out of it. And it had to be a gradual step-by-step process. And Arsenal will have their own moments of that. Maybe the Arsenal, the Wolves one, for example, was one of them. I don't think there have been too many more this season. So if they do go 
like you just said, like if we scored tw- twice in the first like twenty five minutes or something like that, you wouldn't expect them to come back because that's not where they are as a group, as a as a team, as a club even. But over time, that's what Arteta has to start implementing it. And I think we're probably you would expect to see more of that next season. But growth isn't always linear as well. It only takes them getting one big transfer really wrong or to mm. give contract to someone who shouldn't be there or whatever it is. And things can, you know, take a step back as as much as they have taken plenty of steps forward this season, I would say. Arsenal have only taken in the Premier League this season four points from losing positions. Uh, they came back late against Crystal Palace at home and they came back late against Wolves in that game. That's it. That's four points all season. But yet you can look at their season and see they were one up against Everton. Everton came back, Richarlison 79, and in the last 10 minutes, Arsenal fell apart. You look at the Manchester United game, they're one up, then they go 2-1 down, they get back into it, and then they fall apart late on. They're not a team that has dealt well with adversity. They were one up against Man City and ended up losing 2-1. So they've dropped more points from winning positions than they've gained from losing positions. And that, that to me, always is a question mark. And look, it's it's natural they're still in the early days of this. The, the thing I, I struggle with, though, is you get so many Arsenal fans, they're just anointing themselves as nailed on now for, for fourth-place finish. They're going to challenge for the title next year. Arteta is a genius. And I, before we move on to Liverpool, which, you know, we're nearly an hour in, uh, what are your thoughts on Mikel Arteta? Because I happen to believe he may well just be Oli Gunnar Solskjaer with a better haircut and a better tan. <laughs> well, he's definitely got a better haircut. Um, like, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that there's enough to know yet. I mean, he didn't take a, a job in a, a lower league or a lower um, competition than the Premier League first for us to have a look. I mean... There have been countless managers who just come in, take their first senior job and do unbelievably well. And the guy who's trying to beat us to the title is probably the best example ever of that. And Mikel Arteta studied under him and coached under him and all the rest of it, so you would expect that he's got a good grounding, but that doesn't necessarily translate into how he does his own role. I mean, Steve Clark, for example, was a really, really good assistant and a coach and everything, but as a manager, didn't do so much. He was much older. Pepin Lee his first job as a head coach himself didn't go too well but we know he's unbelievably highly rated as a coach as an assistant so uh, Ali has just mentioned here in the chat that Trivier has shown a lot more ability as manager than Arteta fine he's also been doing it for a lot longer you know this is still Arteta's first job Patrick Vieira has had a job in America that's a different type of football he's had a job in France it's a different type of football it's a different mm. level of expectation now he's in the Premier League and also if you want to say that it might make a difference he was a better player than Arteta was as as well yeah and a different type of player than Arteta was as well so all of these things there is no I don't think there's a definitive way to know at this point in time what Arteta will do mostly because we don't know what his own capacity for improvement is yet his career is too short at the moment to make massive judgments of what he can be has he shown at this moment in time that he's a brilliant tactician no he hasn't has he shown he's a better tactician than let's say Frank Lampard who is about the same career path as him so far yes Yes. 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 He's shown that he's more capable of making in-game changes. He's shown that he's more capable of uh, setting the team up to play a particular opposition just for one-off matches. Uh, so I think that there's definite impressive traits 
that he has. But it's really, really rare that you can have a manager just come in and in his first job, he takes someone from mid-table to win the Premier League. That's ludicrous. Like If he does that, he is almost immediately up there with some of the finest managers we've seen in the Premier League. And right at this minute, he's not. You can see that he's not. You can see that there's frustrations that he has on the touchline and the emotion of the match gets away from him and he makes a bad decision or he doesn't make a decision and he lets the game drift. Top managers don't do that, but he hasn't had time to become that yet. So maybe he can, maybe he can't. I'm not going to say either way at the minute. He's not there right now and this club is not there right now. I think they're probably at about the right place for each other, to be perfectly honest, and that's as much as they could hope for after the shambles of the last decade. Yeah, I mean, he has spent a significant amount of money. Uh, you look at this past summer, they spent uh, $7 million on Tavares, 15 on Le- 16, sorry, on Lakonga, 50 on Benjamin White. I love that he came out and said he prefers being called Benjamin, and everybody just carried on calling him Ben. Same as Andy Cole wants to be Andrew Cole, but he'll always be Andy to the rest of us. Uh, 30 million on Odegaard, 24 on Ramsdale, and 16 on Tommy Asu. That's a substantial chunk of money. Uh, no matter who you are, they were the, I think they were the highest spending club in Europe last year in terms of net spend. Obviously, PSG spent ludicrous amounts on, on signing fees and stuff like that, but Arsenal did spend uh, a lot of money there. You've got, you know, the guts of 140 million pounds spent there. And the previous season, they weren't shy about throwing money around either. They brought in Pablo Mari, they brought in Gabriel. Um, he he has been backed. It's just, like you said, it's too early really to know much about him. I think he's very, very fortunate that he won the FA Cup that first season because otherwise I wonder if they might have looked at the eighth place finish last season the eighth place finished the season before and the fact they finished fifth under Emery and thought, hang on, we're going backwards here. Like we're going backwards at a worrying rate. But as you mentioned earlier, one of the things he's had to deal with is getting rid of bloated contracts, underperforming players, bad eggs, and, you know, trying to find players that can be part of something. And, it may well be that Arteta's role at Arsenal is merely that of a table setter. He is merely the guy who is going to... Now, I, I don't know if you're much of a basketball fan, but there's a guy called Brett Brown. Joe Connors, when he hears this, will appreciate this. Brett Brown was a really highly regarded assistant coach under the San Antonio Spurs with Greg Popovich. And he was brought to Philadelphia to the 76ers to oversee a complete teardown and rebuild. And he was a very highly regarded coach, but he has one of the all-time worst records as a head coach because the team was purposely trying to lose. So slightly different to Arsenal, but the point of it was what they were trying to do was get rid of the big bad contracts that they had, develop and find the next generation of young players that were going to be able to bring the Sixers back to contention, which is where they are now, in large part thanks to the groundwork done by Brett Brown. And I do wonder if Arteta's role will be to get Arsenal to a point where they become very attractive to a top manager who looks at them and thinks, right, I can walk in there, 
I get Tomiyasu, Saliba, Gabrielle, Tierney. I get Ben White. I get Saka, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, Odegaard. That's not going to take a whole lot for me to go in, raise the level of those players, add a couple more pieces, and all of a sudden I'm working with a, a squad that can go and compete. And I don't have any albatross contracts holding me back. I don't have an Osel or a Kalasnik or Aubameyang or whoever else you want to name that was there on, on stupid money, that they've just got basically a clean slate. I, I do wonder if maybe, not, not that that's the plan for him, but if that's maybe how it works out with him. Because you watch him play and the football can be quite good at times, but... You know, you see these clips people put up and on, on Twitter, Arteta ball in full flow. I can go and find you the same clip from Lampard's Chelsea of them playing out through a press and creating an opportunity that ultimately ends in nothing or that ends in a nice goal by Mason Mount driving late at the back post. I can find that of any manager. I can find it of Gerrard. I can find, well, not any manager. You're not going to find it of Hodgson, obviously, but... Do you know what I mean? You, you can find those clips and manipulate those clips for anybody. So with Arteta, we're just, we haven't seen anything yet to suggest he can be a top manager. We've seen certain things that suggest he won't be. But again, he's, what, two and a half years into this? There's just not enough data on him. Yep, and I think that's, like I said, I think that's okay for Arsenal because that's kind of where they are as well. They are doing this rebuild up from the ground and bringing through younger players. I think it's no bad thing that they've got a coach who is kind of unblinkered by the, what's come before in the last 10 years of his career to do this alongside them. And maybe, like you said, maybe that's when they get to a point where he can't take the next step, it'll be ready for someone more experienced and better mm. to come in. And maybe he goes and does that part of his career somewhere else. It's also okay. It'll work out fine for both of them if that's the case. And they are still Yeah, I mean, if he just becomes the guy who manages... If he just becomes the guy who, you know, manages Brighton and finishes in the mid-table, that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You're still a... If you can become... If Arteta can become a guy that can manage in this league for 10, 15 years, finish, you know, mid-table or above and, and, and do things like that and develop players and play a nice brand of football, that's absolutely admirable. He doesn't need to be the guy who wins the league. It's the same as Gerard. People want to anoint Gerard as this, you know, next coming, the guy who replaces Klopp. It doesn't have to be that at all. There shouldn't be that pressure placed on him. If Stephen Gerrard spends the next 10 years at Aston Villa and just keeps them competitive, if, if he does at Aston Villa what David Moyes did at Everton, that's absolutely admirable. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a fine managerial career. It's not disappointing in any way. It's only disappointing if you judge it based on who the player was, not who the manager is. I think people sometimes forget, because we get more and more players now that finish playing and within four or five years, they're managing back in the division. People automatically think, well, they're going to be the same as the player. It's just not the case. And the other thing you mentioned as well was, you know, he worked under Arteta, but that doesn't, or under Pep, rather, but that doesn't necessarily lead to him being a good manager. That's exactly correct. There are far more... 
there are far more failures who were top-rated assistants. Like Peter Taylor is is the probably the biggest example. He was Brian Clough's number two, and he was widely regarded as being maybe not every bit as important as Clough, but certainly you know forty percent of the force of that managerial tandem. And he failed as a manager. There's far more Peter Taylors than there are Bob Paisleys. You know, you look at the ones at United. Rennie Mullenstein, brilliant coach, not a good manager. Carlos Quiros, brilliant coach, not a good manager. Steve McLaren, brilliant coach, not a particularly good manager. More fails than, than success. There's a lot more of them than there is Bob Paisley's, Hansi Flick's. I mean, Hansi Flick, I rode off the minute he got the Bayern job. I said, this guy, what, what are you giving the job to him for? He turned out to be one of the best managers in the world. But there's, he, he's a rarity. Those guys are very, very rare. It's far more likely Arteta becomes either a middling or slightly below manager than a, an elite-level top-class manager. That's just the nature of it. Um, let's leave Arsenal and let's look at Liverpool quickly. Uh, Klopp has said Mo Salah is back in training and should be fine. This boy is not made of normal stuff. Uh, Ibu is back in training as well, but Costa Simicus and James James Milner Milner uh, to give him his full title and nickname. They are both ill. Uh, haven't been ruled out of tomorrow's game, but if they're ill, you'd assume we won't take any chances with them. What are you expecting from Liverpool in this game? Because there's part of me that thinks, Carl, and this might sound mental, and apologies to all, and this might upset you the way you upset me before. There's part of me that, that, that thinks this is the game to start Ox on the right of the midfield because he always does well against them. And I could be <laughs> mental, but it's just it's just something that's come to mind in the last day or so. Um, do you know, I mean, I mean, I have no specific issue with, not with with playing Oxley Chamberlain, but we have all the midfielders fit at the minute, and he seems to be at the minute at the bottom of the pile. You know, he wasn't in the uh, in the squad. We've had Curtis Jones coming in and out, so possibly that happens with Ox as well. But I would be surprised if he started ahead of, I don't know, let's say Navigator, for example, who I think has not established himself as a starting one of the three, but is probably playing well enough to be number four all the time at the moment. So when a change is made, I would kind of look to him to come in right now. And I guess you have to look ahead as well. I know, I know Klopp says he doesn't, all the rest of it lies, he does. We play a cup game at the weekend, and more than likely we're going to see more rotations for that. So if I was looking at Oxlade-Chamberlain to come in, I would, at this point in time, be looking at that game rather than this one. I think that's fair, though I will say I do think we'll have to go fairly strong against Boris because they're on a bit of a charge of knocking out Premier League clubs from the FA Cup, and I really don't want to be the next victim. but yeah, I mean, look, it is possible. I, he, Ox does just tend to like playing against his former club. I expect it's the Henderson, Fabinho, uh, Thiago midfield that starts this one. Though I, I think, based on what we've seen this season, Naby Keita should be starting. Uh, now, I also think he should be starting on the left and moving Thiago back to the right, which would give us Thiago, Fabinho, Naby, which... 
and I will maintain this for as long as I breathe, the best midfield we've seen for a sustained run under Klopp was the Thiago right, Fabinho six, Ginny left, Trio that played the last 10 games of last season. That midfield worked pretty close to perfectly. And I think Naby's capable of doing what Ginny was doing, but at a better level, especially on the ball. Now, Klopp might want a bit more physicality in there to deal with Thomas Partey's running off the ball, but it's not like Henderson's particularly good at tracking runners. And he also won't be anywhere close to Partey because Partey will be on the right of Arsenal's two. Henderson will be on the right of our three, moving out onto the right wing quite a bit. So he doesn't really help with, with coping with Partey. It's not like Granit Xhaka is running away from anybody. So I, I do think you could go with a more control-orientated midfield three for this one. I would be inclined to. Like I said before when we were discussing Odegaard and that, I think you keep the ball away from that central little triangle area between the eights and the tens. That's where we will win this game. That's where we will control where the game is played and how it's played. And for that, I would go those three exactly, Keita, Thiago and uh, Fabinho. I don't imagine that we'll see it from the start because it seems to be Keita or Thiago at the minute. And obviously there's a bit of a a balancing of fitness with both of those players. So it's understandable in a way. But even if it's Henderson and just one of the other two, I think that that's more than enough the only one question I would have is that Fabinho in that last game I thought he looked a bit leggy a bit slow a bit uh, off the pace for the first half yeah, hour or so knackered. yeah so if he if he needs a bit of a, a rest then I could see Henderson 6 and then Thiago and Keita as the other two yeah I mean that's possible that would raise a little bit of an alert for me though on in terms of Henderson being diligent enough to deal with Odegaard dropping off the back of him um, I think Henderson's refusal to do a lot of his own defensive work is one of the reasons Fabinho looks so tired. He's constantly having to cover across um, and help Trent where Henderson should be the one doing that. But he did look leggy. He did look leggy against Brighton. I would like to see Thiago, Naby and Fab as the three to start this one and bring Henderson on on 65 or whatever, if need be. I'd also rather see Curtis Jones start because I think he gives you a little bit more control. I think he's been good in his recent appearances. So Curtis, Fabinho, plus one of the other two. Again, I'm just thinking about control here. The ability to keep the ball away from them. The ability to dictate where the game is played and how it's played. And not get occasional rushes of blood that see you pressing a goalkeeper and 40 yards out of position. That's the worry that I have. Yeah, um, I think part of that obviously is going to be down to who we have starting up front as well. And there's probably more questions there than usual. And I don't honestly think that any of those five midfielders changed around for this game for the first half should make any ch- should make any difference to how Liverpool play and dominate this match. I think that this is a game we should be controlling in every aspect, not just positional play, but the territory where we are on the pitch how we're directing their counterattacks to have to be, uh, which should be very, very much down the flanks and nowhere else at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, right, defensively, I assume we're going Trent, Joel, Virgil and Robbo. I, I don't think he changes it for this one. No. Up front then, there is a question mark and 
I thought Sadio played very well against Brighton. I thought it was one of the better all-round performances that he's had in that number nine position. Uh, but Diogo Jota owns Arsenal Football Club, um, and especially Ben White. He has walked him like a dog a, mund- a, a multiple on multiple occasions this season. So I wonder if it's Salah, Jota, Diaz with Mane off the bench. I was going for Salah, Mane, Jota, whichever way around you want those latter two. Probably Mane back to the left because when Jota starts through the middle, that's where Mane goes. But I personally think that now is Mane as a centre forward as a nine and that's where he should be and that's it. But it doesn't really matter because they do swap over anyway. They do. They do. The only thing I would say is that against Cedric, I I think Diaz will have an immense amount of joy, whereas Jota, wide left, doesn't really cause him the same problems on the ball. Jota's off-ball movement is where he'll cause a lot lot of trouble. Um, Klopp may well just stick with the same front three. He may well decide that Naby or that that Mo needs just a little bit of a rest because he's got the little injury. So maybe Sadio starts centrally with Jota right, or Sadio starts right with Jota centrally. Um, it is a very nice problem to have. The other option, of course, is another man who over the years has embarrassed Arsenal on many, many occasions. And in fact, his first great performance in a Liverpool shirt came against Arsenal, and that's Bobby. And Bobby does have a history of playing very, very well against Arsenal. And against centre-backs like Ben White, and Gabriel, who can both be a little impetuous and can both find themselves wandering out after a player, maybe Bobby is the one to start. And maybe you go Salah, Bobby, Jota. If he had had minutes in him, then yes, I would be starting him. But he doesn't. So I wouldn't be starting him just straight away from this. Again, I think it would have been ideal to get him a few minutes in the last game. Circumstances meant you couldn't, so... I would mm. hope for like a, a considerable twenty-minute run out or whatever, and then he plays at the weekend in the cup. Uh, I think that that's probably where Fino has to go in terms of regaining first-team minutes. But I'm not going to be you know disappointed if it's him in the lineup because, like you say, he has a, a history of being very, very good against them, and more importantly, a history of being very, very good. Uh, I would have yeah. Diaz in every single lineup. I, I'm going to put that out. I just think that there, there will be obviously plenty of changes as we go and. Make Maybe this is one where we will expect to have a lot of the ball and a lot of um, spaces, not necessarily behind in the defence, but right in the middle of the defence because, like you say, they, they do get dragged at times. And this is not a game that Arsenal have been up against very often recently where they don't have the ball and they don't have to um, keep trying to break down defence. This is one way they're going to have to do the defending for quite long stretches. Mm. Not all game long. Obviously, they're at home and all the rest of that nonsense, but... Basically, we're better than them. We'll have more of the ball than them, and we will make them defend a lot more than they've had to. Right. What is your prediction for this game? Well, Arsenal are definitely improving, but since 2014-15, right at the end of that season, the only times that they've beaten us are when we were very, very drunk after winning the title and twice on penalties. So basically, they don't beat us. Um, I Liverpool's defence has been ridiculously good recently. Like really, 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 really good. They don't give up good chances to anybody. And I might as well divert here to the plugs, which would normally come afterwards, but I've just done a piece on this um, on, a, on a run since the Crystal Palace match, basically, which when we were sliced open repeatedly and we were lucky to get the win, really. 
But since then, it seems to have been that that game was like a catalyst for us to just lock everything down. And we've only mm. conceded a couple of goals, and both of them have been, or all, or if or if you go across all competitions, they've been either absolute worldies or just perfect, perfect hits. The quality of chances we give up, not good. So I don't think Arsenal are scoring in this game. And if they do, it's going to have to be something absolutely magic because we have been so, so good at shutting down spaces, so, so good at forcing people wide. Of course, they will get chances from you know those offside goals that apparently count in some people's eyes, but they don't. So I'm going to go for 3-0. I don't know that it's actually going to be quite that wide open in terms of a match, but I feel like we'll, we'll rediscover that clinical edge that's been a little bit missing. That is actually my prediction as well, is that we beat them 3-0. I, I can see us getting a goal early and then them having a real wobbly spell and us kind of, you know, banging on the door but not getting the second. But they'll have to open up. They'll have to come and chase the game and it's that's near suicidal against us. It really is not something that you want to do. And with whatever combination Klopp puts up front, we're going to have pace to burn and regardless of how good they've been, you know, defensively this season, they're not a team that defends well facing their own goal. If we get the ball behind them, they're in big trouble. They're in big, big trouble. They start to panic. And Ramsdale, for all his bluster and, you know, big stupid arms, he's not a keeper that deals well when there's players running at him and the defence is nowhere to be seen. He makes rash decisions. He commits himself to things he can't get to. So I think we will see Liverpool pick them off on the counter. Um, I'm going to go 3-0 as well. And I think it's I think it's going to be more comfortable. Not, not necessarily an easy win or anything like that, and I don't think dominant, you know, with 25 shots to six or anything like that, but I do think we'll find it that, They'll play a lot in front of our back four and we'll play a lot behind their back four. And um, yeah, I, I'm going to go 3-0 as well. Have you anything else you want to plug before we go? No, like I said, I'll, uh, there's that piece. I'll put that out on the uh, in the group and on Twitter as well so people can read. It's about Liverpool's defensive work and improvements and how that's basically leading us to these uh, title charges on multiple fronts ahead of the weekend. We have another podcast. Oh, no, we won't have a podcast for it. Will we be doing a semi-final one or not? Yeah, we might as well. We might as well. It's quarter-final. We might as well do a little on Forest because they are an interesting story this year. Yeah. So if we do that and we do something else as part of it as well, I think yeah, we we'll do, do a couple that, of yeah. questions. Yeah, and I'll have a uh, preview piece for El Glasgow as well at the weekend. Perfect. Right, we'll follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Read his work on The Independent. And this is Anfield. Follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle and listen to the two-footed pod every day at 4 p.m. and the Daily Red every day around lunchtime. We'll see you later this week. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it.
You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.